Exodus 29, 29 is where we're going to start. The, um, we've been talking about the priests and how we, uh, in the New Testament, there, there's no more priesthood. There's a new royal priesthood, and it's the saints. It's the fact that Christ now, as the high priest, has come to dwell inside of us as the temple, the temple of God. And we individually are priests who are ministering and offering our lives as sacrifices to the Lord every day. Uh, And we're going to look at that a little bit more tonight, specifically the idea where as priests, we are sent out into the world to be the fragrance of Christ and to to offer our lives as a drink offering or as a a burnt offering to him, and that that would be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Like we see that term over and over again. It's amazing. I did the Blue Letter Bible search and just put like sweet-smelling aroma and there was a you know, hundred or so references where it says that, and most of them are in the book of Leviticus, which talks about the sacrifice. We thought we talked about sacrifices in detail in Exodus, but Leviticus, even more so. Like, I mean, it's, it's minutia to the extreme. Like, they get down to the, the organs and the fatty lobe and all that stuff, and we kind of have talked about that a little bit, but we'll see what happens once we get to Exodus. Maybe we'll derail from Leviticus. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so let's jump in, and we'll read... And um, we'll we'll see if we can get through as much as I had planned. Uh, Verse 29 of Exodus 29 says, The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. So we, we spent a lot of time looking at the garments, the ephod and the the, they were adorned with different stones that represented the different tribes of, of Israel. There was the turban that he wore and the cloak and the apron and all this different stuff. And we spent a lot of time looking at that. And what I find really interesting, and I, as I was looking at this, I, I, it was one of those things that, like Chris always says, like you see something in Scripture and you're like, did I just discover this? And you're not sure. And then you kind of, you, you, I personally, I know he goes on and tries to see if anybody else knows about it. I like to not spoil it for myself and just think that I discovered it. <laughs> um, but what I find really interesting is I often picture the priestly garments as being these beautifully crafted, uh, you know, war, this wardrobe that is just glamorous because that's how it's described. <clears throat> but as we saw, when they consecrated the garments, they sprinkled the blood on them and the oil. And it doesn't say, and then they washed them at the dry cleaners and brought them back. And I see it over and over again about the priests being covered, and everybody's being sprinkled with blood and oil, but there's never any word of that being cleaned off. So I find that really interesting that he specifically says that these garments that we sanctified for the high priest, we consecrated, we set them aside, his sons are going to wear them too. And these garments, if you, if you remember, they're, they're still bearing the stains of the sacrifice, that had been sprinkled as a testimony for the, the atonement of the sins of the people and of the high priest, um, which I find really interesting because we know that our high priest, Jesus, continually bears the marks that he took as part of the sacrifice for all sin. It says in, uh, in Revelation, it talks about, you know, I beheld a lamb as though it had been slain. And when Jesus appeared to his disciples, he said, touch me, like put the holes... The holes were still there, which is interesting to think about, is that Jesus not only took on human form, but he kept it even in his glorification. And the, you know, the one passage in Revelation, it says that he wore a robe that had been dipped in blood, and he bears 
the marks of slaughter, even in eternity. So it's a constant reminder of what he went through for us. And when we see the, the lambs being offered over and over and over again, we get like, oh my gosh, this is so tedious. How could anybody forget what it meant? And we do, you know, we often forget exactly what the, the enormity of the sacrifice, and it's important that as we look at this, we remember. And I find it really interesting. A person, you may have heard it before, but a person once said that the only man-made thing in heaven are the scars in Jesus' hands and feet and the, the sword in his side, you know, which is really, it's kind of even more humbling because you could think Jesus humbled himself for 33 years while he was on earth, and then he like came on the scene, got his resurrected body. Yeah, he did, but he chose for his resurrected body to bear the marks that he had received at the expense of our sin, which I find really interesting. And when I read about the, the garments of the high priest having the the blood sprinkled on them, and didn't see anything about them being cleansed after that, I was like, hmm, maybe the high priest had those stains on him as a reminder of not only am I, cleansing, am I being cleansed or am I atoning on the behalf of the sins of the people, but my own sins. And we see it over and over again. So I find, uh, this one verse in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10 and 11, or actually it's probably even more than that, uh, a couple more verses than that. But if you could put that first verse up, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, <clears throat> Paul says, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. And what he's talking about here, he's talking about him specifically about how he's constantly being given over to beatings and suffering. We kind of talked about that on Sunday morning, but the idea of like, carrying about that constant reminder of what Jesus did for us. And that's important. And we as priests, while we are now new creations and we're set apart, there is a part of us that is always living in the shadow of the cross, I guess. Because without the cross, there is no empty tomb. And while we do love to focus on the life that comes, we, it is important from time to time to remember the fact that Jesus not only gave himself for us, but gave up a perfect body to have an imperfect uh, form, I guess. I mean, obviously his body is not going to be corruptible like ours is and stuff, but you guys get what I'm saying. I don't want to harp too much on it. But uh, verses 31 through 37, if we can move on, it says, You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place, and Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them, because they are holy. And if any of the flesh of the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten, because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also, you shall purify the altar and you, when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So I want to take a, a second to look at this, this idea of the fact that Aaron and his sons, the priests, get to partake of the, the sacrificial animal here. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's tons of types here. But it's, as Chris said, it's the only time that they eat of the offering. 
Everything else had been burned up before God, and it was for the Lord. And now this is, an, I kind of see it as God inviting us to his table. And we see a, a picture of this in the New Testament, obviously. But the sentence there, it says, they shall eat those things with which atonement was made. And that I just want to harp on that for a second. Eat of the things with which the atonement was made. And we see in... Um, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, uh, if you could put that verse up, it says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the new covenant, or the, the covenant, sorry. It is shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins, or another translation says the remission of sins. So we see Jesus asking them to partake of something, which is figuratively his body and his blood. And we know, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, there's the next verse up there, or it may have been the previous one, I apologize. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the Holy of Holies by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. So the idea here of them partaking of the flesh that was the very thing that atoned for their sins is seen again in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And that's so cool when we think about it. And Jesus himself spoke of this in John chapter 6. I got a lot of verses tonight, so I apologize. But um, if you have a notepad or something, you can jot them down for your own study. This is huge. I mean, this is, this is the entirety of what we're talking about when we see the priesthood consuming the sacrifice. Jesus fulfills it in himself. He says, so Jesus said to them, I assure you, now if you've never been here before, like this is going to sound really crazy, so just bear with me. <laughs> uh, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. One translation says, my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. So it's like, if you thought that you were living off of the things of this world, you don't know what life is until you partake of what I'm offering. And what's cool about it is that he's saying the same thing that he said to the disciples at the Last Supper, which is, my body is being broken. The, uh, if, if he goes on in verse 56 of that same text, he says, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. It's a, an exchange that's made. And the word atonement actually has to do with an exchange, a, a reconciliation um, of what had been separated. And he's saying, just as the, the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So I see, when I read this, I just immediately thought of these verses because he's saying even in the Old Testament, even with the priesthood, where it, which is just a shadow of things to come that would be fulfilled in Jesus, he says they're going to eat the things with which atonement was made. And I just think that's so cool. There's so much that we could spend and dig out of that. But um, I apologize. Atonement actually comes, it means more to cover uh, ransom, which we'll talk about later, as Doc talks about the exchange, so I apologize about that. Um, now, this part about the outsider not being able to eat, I find really interesting, because we don't like to think of God being exclusive, right? I mean, and, but he's pretty much saying only the priests and only his sons can eat this, this offering, 
or, you know, of the, the offering. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is because this was their livelihood. This is how they ate. This is how they lived. You know, from the, the, the offering that was given to the temple and all that stuff, that was how the priests received their inheritance. It says that the Levites didn't have an inheritance in the land because God was their inheritance. So they didn't have jobs. Their job was to minister in the, in the presence of God, which it seems like a pretty cool job. Um, but what a great responsibility there, obviously, because you're atoning on behalf of the sins of the people. And, you know, the stories about how they would tie a rope around their ankle because if they were sin, sinning and they were in the temple and they didn't belong there, they would die in the presence of God and then they'd pull them out. Um, so there was a huge weighty responsibility there. But one of the benefits was that they got, you know, the, the people provided for them as priests. And the idea of the outsiders not being able to partake of it uh, in Leviticus chapter 22, it elaborates on that a little bit. So if you could put that up. Good job, man. Thank you. No one outside a priest's family is to eat the holy offering. So that's what we talked about. A foreigner staying with a priest or a hired hand is not to eat the holy offering. Check this out, though. But if a priest purchases someone with his money, that person may eat it. And those born in his house may eat his food. So what I see there, and as I was studying, it says basically... There's a high priest, right? And if a high priest purchases somebody, they're allowed to partake of the priest's food. And we know that Jesus is our high priest, and he purchased us with his blood, with his uh, ransom. He said, the Son of Man didn't come to serve, but to, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when it talks about the priest purchasing someone with his own money, he's he's providing a ransom for their life, and they now become a part of the priest's family and can partake of that offering. And also, if you're born into the house, which we know we're born again by uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, we become born again, and we're born into the family of God. We're able to partake of the things that made atonement for us. You know, the same idea of when it talks about Jesus, saying, or when Jesus is talking about, let me eat, you know, eat my food, uh, the, my body and, my, and the blood, and to partake in that, in order to partake in those things, we have to be a part of the priest's family. And the way we are is because he purchased us by his blood. By, he gave that ransom, and we are born into the family. You can't be, um, you know, you can't just kind of be brought along. You have to be born again into the family of God, and then you can partake of all these things. It's really, there's so many things that you could really pull out here in it. We don't have enough time to get through it all. But verse uh, 38, it says, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning for a pleasing aroma a food offering to the Lord. Or your, your translation might say a sweet-smelling aroma or a sweet-smelling savor. Same idea. So we see this idea of a drink offering, and your translation may even say libation, which is a, the idea of pouring out an, a drink or pouring out something for, on behalf of a deity. And we see it often. Um, I think Jacob does it uh, when he's setting up altars for the Lord at Bethel and stuff. It says that he pours out a drink offering, which is the idea of that that life-giving uh, liquid, you know, whether it was the celebration of wine or water or whatever it was, pouring that out was the idea of saying, like, everything of that I have is yours. I'm pouring it out. I'm offering 
every bit of my life to you. And we see it in, Paul talks about it in Philippians 2, 2 Timothy 4, when he says, I am being poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. My time is up. I've offered my life completely to the Lord. And it's cool because in Ephesians 5, 2, we see Paul encouraging the saints, encouraging us, how we should live in this world, this walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The idea of ourselves becoming not the lamb that was slain to pay for the sins because Jesus was that lamb and that was taken care of. So how are we an offering to God? We see in Romans 12 that we lay our life down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And that's our reasonable service. Like that's the reasonable thing to do because of what he's done for us. We are then essentially obligated to do it, to give our lives back to him. Why would we want to keep them to ourselves? Because mankind had their life in their own control. That's where the problem came from is when the enemy said, you can get something better for yourself. And they they believe that lie, and we believe that lie every day, and we go and try to take or run ahead of God or do this or do that, and then we go, God, save me out of this mess that I made. And graciously, he's always there to reach down and say, here, let me put you back on a straight path. Let me clean you up, you know? But it's the idea of saying, God, I don't want to constantly be running off and doing my own thing. I want to give my entire life over to you, surrendered as a sacrifice, something, and and we see time and again when we look at Exodus, it's never to be the, the leftovers. It's never to be the, the blemishes. It's never to be the, the secondary, like, I was going to throw this out anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're, we're, we're downsizing and stuff. We're getting ready to move, and we're putting a lot of stuff on the online yard sales and stuff. And these are things that I wouldn't donate to the church, okay? <laughs> like, these are things that I'm like, if I can get $5 for it, awesome. If not, I'm probably going to throw it away anyway. You know, that's what... We as Christians often tend to give to God as our life. It's like, well, I have this. Okay, God, I have this amount of time in my week. I'm going to give it to you. Instead of saying, okay, God, here's my week. Show me where I can do things and I'll do them. (laughs) You know, like it's a totally different idea here. And God is pleased in the idea of saying, God, you first and everything else doesn't compare. And the decisions and the work that you do, the job that you have, the relationships that you establish, they become secondary because of the full offering, that pouring out. And, you know, I, I'm challenged every day to, to say, okay, like, what is in my life that could possibly be surrendered even more? And, we're, you know, we should always be thinking that way because time is short and we see the world, uh, you know, it's spinning out of control and we're here for a purpose. And we talked about it a little bit on Sunday morning. It's like living a life that is sold out, fully surrendered to the Lord. It's painful sometimes, you know, true worship and true fellowship with God in the Old Testament always came from the death of something, you know, isn't that weird? That in order for man to have intimacy with God, there has to be a dying. Thankfully, he instituted that substitutionary atonement. So it wasn't us dying, but now we in the New Testament as saints, we live our lives to God in whole. So, um, Let's move on in verse 42. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. 
I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. We see this a lot in the Old Testament where God says, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's how they knew him. That's how God revealed himself to them. And it's important that we keep those milestones. You know, we see it in the Old Testament a lot where people, they meet, they have an encounter with God and they build an altar. And it's not like an idol type thing. Like, oh, remember when we were like really saved and like we were like on this spiritual high and now life stinks? I wish I could go back. That's not what it's, that's not the idea. It's when you're in those situations, looking back and seeing, okay, God was with me there. He's with me here. And he's going to be with me in the future. You know, see the difference there? It's important because I tend to personally, this is just confessional time. I tend to look back longingly and say, man, it was like, I was doing so great. Like me and God were like this. So awesome. And now I don't know. God must've like gone on a range, you know, a, a long distance trip. And I'm just like scuffling around here by myself, trying to figure out how to live life. Am I the only one that ever feels that way? Maybe, I'm, maybe I shouldn't be up here. If that, <laughs> um, but you feel those moments and you look back and you're like, oh man, remember when I went to that retreat and God just like rocked my world? Like, it was just like, I was like talking to people and I would lay my hands on them and they'd just be like healed, healthy, awesome. Everything was like amazing. And then life happens and we go, oh no, like maybe that was all fake. Maybe that wasn't real. Maybe that wasn't legitimate. And we have to remember those markers. We have to look back and say, God was there. There was an altar there. There was something established, and God wants to be with me even now. And what's really interesting about I don't know how I got onto that, but it says the entire scope of Scripture, it's God desperately trying to get to his people. And we're the ones going, no, and hiding and throwing poo, (laughs) you know, like we're just acting like animals. And God's like, don't you understand? Like, I just want to come and live with you. Like, think about it. Like we were in the garden. Everything was great. We messed it up. And then God's like, okay, I have a plan. I'm not surprised by this. There's going to be a guy. He's going to come. He's going to die. I'm going to live. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. But until then, here's the way that I can come and have my presence among the people that are sinful and really don't want anything to do with me. I'm still going to make a way. And that's what we, when we see these altars and temples and lavers and all these things, the idea behind all of this was, okay, mankind is covered in their own sin and filth. And God loves us and says, I need to be near that. Isn't that weird? I need to be near those filthy, rebellious people. So I'm going to make a way, it may be peculiar, but it's a way, and in this way, I will come and I will live in this, well, wilderness with them at this time. You know, they're, they're still walking through the wilderness. But we see these verses over and over again. He says, I'm going to be their God. I'm going to dwell among them. So when people think of God as being like way up there in the sky, like that's something that we've created. That's not something that God wants for us to think about him. He's way up there, the big man upstairs. You know, he doesn't, he's this autonomous being and he just kind of sits back and lets the world do what it wants 
and he kind of interjects every once in a while, but ultimately we're left to ourselves. It's not like that. God is intimately working the course of human history. Dare I say, for each individual, somehow God can, he can work, I find it really interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going off on of my huge like theological like mind explosion things right now. <laughs> um, think about this. Every one of us has had events in our life where we've said, wow, God, like, you made that happen for me. Like, you run into somebody, you're struggling, and you read a verse in the Bible, it doesn't really come alive to you, and then someone on the radio is preaching that verse, and then you walk into work, and someone has their Bible open on the desk that you didn't even know was a Christian, and that's the verse in the Bible as they're flipping. You know what I mean? Like, God orchestrates all these things. But then he's also orchestrating things in other people's lives, and he's also orchestrating things that you're crossing into other people's lives. And you heard something that spoke to you, and they heard something totally different that spoke to them. And you're in, you, think about that, okay? Like, this is mind-blowing. And this is what God wants to do for each person every day. He wants to be in our stuff. He wants to be in our lives. So when we look at Exodus, we tend to get really stoic and proper because we're talking about sacrificing the bull and this and that. But the whole point is these verses right here. I'm going to set aside the tent of meeting. You're going to serve me as priest so that I can dwell with you, so I can be your God. And they will know that I'm the Lord because I brought them out. I redeemed them. I saved them. I rescued them because I want to dwell with them. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of these things is that Jesus comes and lives inside of us. The ultimate, the consummation of God coming and dwelling among his people is actually condescending to live inside of those sinful people. Amen? You guys know this verse. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul's quoting this verse in Exodus. So the idea of the temple, we talked about it. You know, Exodus 25, 8 is when... God started to give the instructions of the temple. We read about it a couple weeks ago. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. He's giving us the opportunity to take part in relationship. He says, you make the sanctuary, I'll come and live there. You know, it, again, it's a voluntary thing, but God desperately wants to make his home with us, which is, is amazing. So as we move into chapter 30, we'll plow through this a little bit because it's a lot about uh, the same things, but I, the reason I wanted to talk about that idea of the, the sweet-smelling aroma is because in chapter 30, we see incense and oil, are, they take up the entire chapter, the idea of this fragrance. So let's move in. Uh, chapter 30, verse 1. Are you guys okay? You're sticking with me, hopefully? Um, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be one piece of it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around, its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet you. And Aaron shall burn 
fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So there's this altar. It's separate from the sacrificial altars that was only for the purpose of burning incense to the Lord. And if you think about it, you know, they're slaughtering two lambs a day. Sometimes they're slaughtering a bull. Sometimes they're adding all this stuff. So if you've ever been anywhere where there's like a, a butcher shop or something like that, like, or if you've gotten dried blood on your clothes or, I mean, like, it stinks, right? God is gracious that even though this is a bloody mess to remind them of the severity of their sin, he's giving grace by saying, here's this beautiful incense that's to burn at all times. So you're reminded that your the sacrifice for your sins, even though it's painful and disgusting, it's sweet to me. That sweet-smelling aroma, when you're thinking, you know, I think as a, as a, a man that likes meat, it was a sweet-smelling aroma when those animals were burning on that fire, right? Can I get a yay, man? <laughs> um, but the idea of how, like, why is like the sin? How is that a sweet smelling? It's the idea that the sin is being burnt up to purify his people, and the the, the incense there is being uh, raised to the Lord. And in Revelation, <clears throat> we hear about the incense. What is this incense we see in, in the presence of God? So if you could put up Revelation five eight. Um, this is a cool verse. It says, now when he had, uh, I'm sorry, the, the one before that. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So when we see this idea of the incense burning and he says, don't put a sacrifice on this altar. Don't, uh, don't put oil on it. You're, you know, don't put any other kind of offering or pour a drink out on it. No, the purpose of this altar is to burn incense. So the idea of our prayers going up before the Lord as a fragrant scent is awesome. It's great. You know, oftentimes uh, we use our prayers to confess, and, and we, we should, to confess our sins. Um, and we use our prayers to ask God for things, and we use our prayers for a lot of things. Gossip sometimes when we're in a group. <laughs> people sit around in a circle and they say, Lord, you know, but for the people around me, let me tell you why we're praying for this person. Uh, the prayers are to be offered up. And he says that, you know, don't put man's offering on it. Like, don't taint it with your work and your sacrifice. We have something for that. Prayer is for us to just offer to God and just say, Lord, hallelujah, you saved me, you redeemed me, I just want to be with you. It's our time to share in that presence of God. And I find it really cool that uh, it, it talks more about it in, in the next uh, couple chapters of Revelation. If you could skip to the next one. Another angel. Oh, and real quick, if you remember, uh, we looked a couple weeks back at, in Hebrews, and we'll talk about it tonight. All of these things about the temple are actually a shadow of things that are eternal in the heavens. So when we hear about the incense here, and we see a picture in Revelation of what it's like there, that incense is literally the prayers of the saints. Even though... Here we see it's, it's literally, you know, it's 
incense sticks that get burnt. You know, like, it's pretty cool to think of it that way. A golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Isn't that a cool picture? Uh, an interesting note is that if you're familiar with Luke chapter 1, the Christmas story, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is one of the priests, and it's his time to go and burn incense on the altar of incense. And that's where he is when the angel of the Lord comes and says, you're going to have a son named John the Baptist. Well, he doesn't call him John the Baptist. He just calls him John. But, um, and he's like, oh, I don't believe that. And then you know the story. But isn't that cool? Like, sometimes we detach the New Testament from the Old Testament so much, but this is the instruction to build the altar of incense, which is where the instruction would come from the angel, just like it says there that the, the incense ascended before God from the angel's hand. Well, guess what? The prayers went up from Zechariah and Elizabeth. We want a baby. We want a baby. Those, that incense that went up before God, and the angel came back down from God with a message for Zechariah saying, you're going to get your answer to prayer. Isn't that cool? How that, you know, God's reciprocal in that way. It's amazing. Um, what's cool too, and it's, it's a coincidence, but no, there's no such thing, I guess, is that the only time blood would be put on this altar of incense would be one day a year. And that day is today. It's the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, which I find really cool that we're talking about it tonight. Um, Aaron would put the blood from the altar, and we talked about it, he would sprinkle it on everything on the Day of Atonement, to cleanse everything. So he would put it on the horns of the altar of incense. Uh, and that's what uh, the Jewish people celebrate, and they're celebrating it today uh, with a fast and, and with making atonement for their sins, which they can't do, but they apologize to people, and they, they try to do right by the thing, people that they've wronged. Um, so we move on in verse 11. We're, we're making a good pace, I think. We're doing good. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. And this is a little strange, but we'll, we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Oh, thanks for clearing that up. Uh, <laughs> uh, as my little note says, it says a gera is about one-fiftieth of an ounce. Uh, that doesn't clear it up either, me. Uh, but half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Now, this is, a, this is a weird thing because we know, like, well, I thought God didn't want him to take to number the people because David did and the whole plague burst out. But if you, you notice what it says is that he says, take this ransom from them, from everybody, so that there isn't a plague. And the idea is that the people belong to God so that in numbering them and getting the ransom, they're essentially offering to God their lives and similar to the... Um, the firstborn child, where they were supposed to offer it to the Lord. They didn't do human sacrifice like the other nations, but they would offer the firstborn goat or whatever, or they would just consecrate the child. Like, we dedicate our children to the Lord. The idea here is that they were giving a half shekel to the tent of meeting, to the place of God, to ransom themselves so that they could live their lives. You know, like, 
God owned them, but they were renting their lives back from God. Is that kind of weird? Yeah, it is. But the reason when David numbered, it was because he was trying to find out his strength as man to say, look at all the army that I have. It wasn't, wow, these are all your people, God. See the difference there? So the idea that God was like, you're my people and you're going to ransom with this half shekel. Now, this isn't tithing. This isn't an offering. So this isn't something that we pattern. Like Some people would be like, see, like if you're rich, you shouldn't give any more. And if you're poor, you shouldn't give any less. Let's live by that for our entire lives. No, that's not applicable. But what he's talking about here, it's talking specifically about making atonement for their lives and ransoming themselves. Because we see in 1 Corinthians 16, I'll just throw this verse up there just for free information. On the first day of the week, this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church, each of you is to set something aside and save to the extent that he prospers so that no one, no collections will need to be made when I come. So he's essentially saying, like, if you make more, give more. You know, it's the, so there are many different things in the New Testament. Obviously, we talk about tithing in the Old Testament. It's a percentage and all that kind of stuff. But the idea with, with Christians giving and offering, it's, you know, our lives, essentially. Like, we already talked about that, like a full life offering. So if there's any chafing when God, when you feel God calling you to give more time or to give more, you know, resources, money, talent, whatever it is, why do you think that chafing is there? It's because of us. It's not because of God being too demanding, because our lives are his. That's why they had to offer the ransom just so that they could go about their lives. You know, it's really interesting when we see it in that light. So some people will try to apply this section and say, see, everybody should give the same amount no matter how much they make. That's not what it's talking about. He's not talking about offering and tithing and all that stuff. So um, I know you're like, good. Uh, (laughs) Probably didn't matter to you at all. Uh, Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. What's really interesting is that in Exodus 38.8, we see that the... Um, when they actually go to make this bronze laver, and just so you know, they haven't made any of this stuff yet. We're just finding out the instructions still. So chapters 34 through 40 are them saying, and then they went ahead and made everything according to the way God told them to make it. When we'll, we probably won't go verse by verse through those chapters because it's reiteration of what we already talked about. But they make the bronze laver out of the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And if you recall, when the Exodus happened, they plundered the Egyptians. They got their jewels, they got their this and that. And in Egypt, they actually are credited with creating cosmetics, you know, eyeliner and all that stuff. It's like, comes from ancient Egypt. And they were very vain. They had these bronze mirrors. They're not mirrors as we think of them. It was shiny brass that you could see a reflection in. And those are the items that were given to make the bronze laver. So if you can imagine the priest as he's coming, he's washing himself and he can see himself in the reflection. And when we look at Scripture, anytime we see running water or drinking water, it's always a type of the Holy Spirit. But anytime we see cleansing water or water to be washed in, it's a type of the Word of God. And there's a verse in James uh, chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, and it says, 
Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and right away forgets what kind of man he was. In verse 25, But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts, this person will be blessed in what he does. So you see the priest here, he's preparing. He knows he's going in to do the offer for the sins of the people, and he needs to cleanse his feet of the dirt of the camp. He needs to wash his hands because he's about to take up the utensils of worship. And he sees himself, and he's probably thinking, who am I? What am I? Like, I'm just a descendant of Levi. You know, like, what has gotten me here? And then he's reminded, as he looks at the clothes, the stains of the blood. He's been consecrated. God has called him to this very action, to do it, and to do it right. So he sees himself, and the, the moment he's probably tempted to think, like, I don't belong here, is when he sees everything that God has done to make him worthy to be there. And that's what we see in the Word of God. When we look at the Word of God, oftentimes we're like, oh, I'm so awful. Like, I do all these things that I'm not supposed to do. And then we read the next verse, and it's like, oh, but God made me worthy to be who I am and to fulfill the calling that he's placed in my life. Isn't that cool? Um, verse, where did we leave off? 22. Well, we'll just read through this section to the end of the chapter because it's talking about the oil and the incense. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much. That is 250 and 250 of aromatic cane and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting. Now listen, he's going to anoint every single thing here. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. I think that's really cool. So you would think like, we always think of like, oh, like, don't let sin in. It'll defile God. God can't be defiled. He's perfect. Anything that comes into the presence of God is made holy. Isn't that cool? Um, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. And the idea here is that, I like it says, don't put it on the body of an ordinary person. What that tells me is that we as priests are extraordinary people. It says we're peculiar people, a special kind of people. First Peter says, a holy priesthood. We are called to be different and to affect the culture, not allow the culture to infect us. And when he says, don't make anything like it, we are not to counterfeit. It's the same thing when he said with the incense, don't, don't do some strange incense there. Like, and we'll see later that Aaron's sons go in with strange fire or whatever. And God says, nope, sorry, you completely disobeyed. Even though I just said, don't do this, you did it. And now I have to judge you and they die. This idea of like trying to conjure up something that's godly and it's not. It's not of the Lord at all. And we see that a lot. You know, it's everywhere. 
and it's hard. You can't really decipher between what's right and what's wrong, but thankfully God gives us discernment, and we, we try to use that to our best judgment. But you've, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen stuff, and you're just like, mm, that just doesn't feel like God to me. <laughs> you know, they're I mean? just a little bit too man-glorifying, or, or what it, whatever it may be. It's, you're glorifying the perfumer, not the, the fragrant scent. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the, kind of what he's saying. Like, don't take pride in the fact that you can make this good-smelling perfume. <laughs> like, it's, it's, this is especially for the Lord to do. Verse 34, it says, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices stacked and onica, I don't know, and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each shall be, there be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you, it shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So this was to be set aside for the work in the temple or the tabernacle at this point. So we will end here, but we talked about the sweet smelling scent of the offering and pleasing God. And how the blood of the offering was on the priest's clothes. But you have to imagine as these, this incense is burning, burning, burning the whole time. You know, I go somewhere, you're by a fire for a little while, and your hair and everything smells like that burnt wood, you know? And, and you can imagine the priests have this incense in their hair and on their clothes and everything, and then they're covered with oil on top of that. So you bet when the priest comes back from doing what he's supposed to do and he's walking throughout the camp that he would walk by and people would be like, Oh, that, that guy must be the priest. I've never seen him before, but he smells that way, so he's a priest. He had a smell, a scent, right? That was, I've just been doing the Lord's work. And we might not think of, I mean, like if you're out there like building huts in Uganda on a missions trip, you probably have a scent too, and it is pleasing to the Lord, but it's not pleasing to man. It's probably B.O. <laughs> but the idea of our service and our sacrifice being what permeates out of our life, even when we're not doing anything, even when we're just going about our daily business, where have we been? Where were we this morning? Were we with God this morning? Did we come into the presence of the Lord and did that permeate the rest of our life? And um, we know that, and I want to end with the verse in 2 Corinthians that you're all familiar with. It says, but thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ and spreads through us in every place the scent of knowing him. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are these new priests that have this incense in our hair and on our clothes and our, the oil that's been poured on us, the Holy Spirit. And God, just as he calls us to carry about the death of Jesus, he calls us to allow the life of Jesus to reflect out of us. So that when we're walking in the camp, you know, with all the rest of the people, the ordinary people, and they're not priests yet, because they haven't received the call from God. We are giving off that fragrance that's pleasing to the Lord, or at least we should be. That's what we're called to be. And uh, I just think that the way that's worded is like God puts us on display. Another translation says he always leads us in triumphal procession. We're like on parade coming back from a victory because we've experienced the victory in Christ. And that should be what people go, wow, like that guy's different. And it's not just because he's wearing Drakkar Noir. <laughs> like he's, there's something about him. And it says, to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. And he goes on and says, like, some people don't like it. You know, you're going to be, 
It's going to be off-putting to some people. But other people, they're just going to be like, man, there's something about this guy. I just want to be around him. There's something about this girl. And it's, I can't explain it. Like, there's a fragrance of life here. Like, there's vi- a vibrant life that attra- is attractive, and I want to be a part of it. And that's what we're called to be. We're called to be that sweet-smelling aroma, just like Christ was. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that you would um, minister to us as we think on it. And I pray that, Lord, we would take our calling as priests um, with the same level of dedication and devotion that even the Old Testament priests had of getting up and doing the things to enter into your presence, Lord, to just spend time with you so that when we're going about our business, it's obvious where we've just been. And uh, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.